All right, we're in a series on First Timothy because we're aiming to be an established church. To be an established church means to be brought to a firm and stable basis. Now, we're planted, but we're not established yet. And as we grow and as men rise up, it's important that we grow the right way and we set the right, for lack of a better word, structures in our midst so we can grow healthy. You know, a plant won't grow well unless it has a trellis, right? And if it does have a trellis, then it will be exposed to the sun equally and it will be able to grow to its full potential. And I believe something like that, something analogous is happening with the church. What God wants a church to do is for the people in it to be led and brought to the place where God wants them to be by God's means and for God's glory. And as we study First Timothy, you see how God wants a church regulated. And so that's why we're studying. So last week we spoke about holiness and reverence in the assembly. That men should pray lifting holy hands before the Lord. And the emphasis not being on the hands, but the holiness of the hands. The women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. And we made the point that God has established the pastoral office, the elders of the church, uh, for men. And men should not be passive spiritually. They should step up and take the lead in their families and in the church as well. Because that's how God designed it. This week, we're going to talk about something very, very important. Something near to my heart and something needed in this church. And that's eldership. So, read with me. 1 Timothy 3, 1-7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, this passage is about a man's character, first and foremost. I was reading a book recently that made the point that our culture, our westernized American culture especially, has traded in valuing character for other things. The writer said in this book, we have become a society which prizes outer charm over inner virtue, which prizes personality over character. And I would add to that, 
we've become a church, an evangelical church, by and large, who wants pastors who can organize programs rather than contend for the faith, who is charismatic instead of committed. And these things will eventually take down a local congregation and even churches by at large. I was reading another book and and there was a a woman from Japan came and visited America. She was a secular businesswoman and she made the observation to this minister. She said whenever whenever I meet a Buddhist leader, I meet a holy man. Whenever I meet a Christian leader, I meet a manager. Brothers, these things ought not to be where the world can look at Christian leaders and see just managers, but not people who are zealous for the things of God, who are committed to holiness, that are genuine, authentic, growing in the Lord. There's a, there's a, a trueness and an unction in them. So, the pastor is not about skinny jeans. It's not about being a good organizer. And not that skinny jeans are bad. I wouldn't wear them. But, um, and not that good management is a bad thing. But what's, what is your emphasis on? What is, what is the thing that the church should require of ministers? Well, in this passage, Paul lays out representative characteristics and qualifications for elders in a local church. Now, if you say, first of all, what's an elder? Uh, we've talked about this, but not um, explicitly yet in a while. So I'm going to answer that question. If you ask, well, how does this apply to me? You know, I, I have no desire to be in the ministry. I have no desire to be an elder. Well, this is just describing a mature Christian. And we should all be striving for these qualities. So if you ask how this applies to you, it applies to you directly in that this is exactly what God expects of mature Christians. This might further apply to men in the church who the Lord has put in their heart a desire for ministry, the work of ministry. And as I preach this, I want to lay before you the idea and even the opportunity to strive for eldership in this church. Members, this is important for you to pay attention to and to understand well because at some point in the future, you are going to be asked to vote for, assess candidates, and eventually call elders to this church. This is, this is a direction in which we need to move. So, please understand this applies to everybody. Not just those who are potential clergymen, but everyone sitting here. This has special and direct application because this is what a Christian looks like, a mature Christian looks like. 
because you're going to be called upon to assess and eventually vote on elders and because men perhaps God is putting it on your heart to strive for the work of ministry so let's talk about this passage and what eldership is and why we need it and what qualifies one to be an elder first of all the apostle Paul says this saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer he desires a noble task an overseer is interchangeable with the term elder and pastor they all refer to the same office so I know we've heard of the word pastor before and maybe some of you have heard the word elder and overseer but they all refer to the same office I want to just read 1st Peter 5 1 through 2 in that passage Peter says Peter the Apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles and in the dispersion um, I'm sorry that's the wrong chapter 1st Peter 5 1st Peter 5 Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker that is going to be, to be revealed, to shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight. In those three words, in those three, yeah, those three words, the word elder is used, shepherding is used, and oversight is used. So, all of those terms are interchangeable with the same office. They all refer to the calling of a man who is put in place by a congregation to exercise spiritual leadership in the church. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is at the church in Ephesus, the very place where Timothy is, interestingly enough. And in Acts chapter 20, he addresses the elders of that church. In Acts chapter 20, verse 17 specifically, we read, Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of the church, singular, to come to him. So there are elders of the church that come to meet Paul he calls them and in verse 28 what does Paul say to them he says pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he obtained with his own soul again those three words presbyteros episkopos and poiamen are used interchangeably shepherd or pastor elder and overseer are all used interchangeably to refer to the same office so understand that what we're talking about here when we talk about those overseers we're talking about A plurality of men who are called to lead the church for God's glory. 
And they all refer to the shepherding office, all of those words. Now, I, I, I wish we had more time to kind of discuss the ins and outs of eldership and how it pertains to the congregation. But really briefly, I want to read. I just want to make the point that the pattern of the New Testament is for a church to have a plurality of elders, not just one, but a plurality of men who are called to lead the church, not just one man. Not just a lead pastor, but multiple men who share the oversight of the church. I just want to run down a few verses. In Titus 1. In Titus 1. 5. Paul says to Titus, The reason I left you in Crete is that to appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. In Acts 11.30. It speaks of the elders of the church at Antioch. In Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas go and they appoint elders in every church. In Acts 15, we, we see that there are elders at the church in Jerusalem. In Acts 20, as I read before, the elders are addressed and they're told to shepherd the flock and exercise oversight. In Acts 21, again, we see elders at the church of Jerusalem. In Philemon, the book of Philemon is written to the elders and the deacons. James 5.14 refers to the elders of the church. And 1 Peter 5, which I just read to you, talks about the elders among you. There is more that we could give, but I hope the point is clear that the pattern of the New Testament church is that it is governed by a multiple multiplicity of qualified men who share in the oversight of the church. If our church is going to be established, if it's really going to be brought to a firm and stable basis, it must move in this direction. We must move in this direction where there are qualified men who are called through their providential God-given desire to ministry and are qualified through a holy life. Now, why is it wise to have multiple men leading a church who are qualified? Why is it wise to have multiple elders leading a church? I'll give you four reasons. First of all, no man is complete in himself. Um, we're part of the body of Christ. And Paul says that arm cannot say to a, the wrist, I have no need of you. The head cannot say to the shoulders, I have no need of you. If we're going to work as a church, if a church is going to glorify God, it must be working together. Much like a body works together to the same end. If a church is only ever led by one man, and I've seen this many, many times, if a church is only led by one man, it is only going to spiritually develop to the abilities and wisdom of that one man. But if a church is led by multiple men, then you have a strong 
multiplicity of gifts in the congregation. You have some men that are very good teachers. You have some men that are good counselors. You have some men who are good at organizing. And all those gifts are needed in the church. But if it's only one man who leads the church, the church is never going to grow past that man's gifts. So I need to decrease in this church if the church is going to grow. And you, sitting here, perhaps some of the men sitting here, and though we're missing some men today, other men in our church now and who may come to our church in the future must increase. Second of all, there's wisdom in the multitude of counselors. There's wisdom in the multitude of counselors. And now while we do have members meetings, it is so good and important for pastors to have other pastors share the wisdom and insight and prayerfully consider matters like a church discipline. Those are very, very hard cases to bring before the congregation. And things should be done carefully and in order. Third, there's a sharing of the shepherding task. I believe the lead pastor is, and I'm going to make the, this point in a minute, the lead pastor is the one that the church, the elder, that the church sets aside to do the majority of the preaching and teaching. But that doesn't mean all of the preaching and teaching. I do believe it would be healthy to have other men on this pulpit. It would be healthy to have other men teaching Bible studies, multiple Bible studies, so that the church is not just built off the learning and the holiness of one man, but multiple men. Fourthly, it sets an example for the flock. It sets an example for the flock that the ministry is not just some particular calling that you have to go to school for and gain much learning, but wouldn't it be great if our children would see men serving as elders in the church and they see men prayerfully beginning services and teaching scripture and Bible studies and participating. And our young men will see and say, that's what a godly man looks like. Not just clergy, not just a man of the cloth, but that's what godly men look like. They come alongside. Now, how did it, again, really quick, how did the elders relate to the lead pastor? Paul, Paul in 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Honor the elders who rule well, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there are elders, and there are elders or an elder or multiple elders that the congregation has set aside to do the majority of preaching and teaching because of particular calling, a particular set of abilities, or learning, or, edu or and education. So the lead pastor is the one typically set aside to do the majority of preaching and teaching, but not all. In our Constitution, then, if you look at our Constitution, it's on the website. Go to churchofthevineny.org. Go down to our beliefs. Click on Constitution, and you can see how we have this specifically outlined. Um, we have outlined elders, and an elder in this church is a, will be a lay leader 
who meets once, twice a month to pray, to shepherd the flock, who shares the, the burdens as the elders decide. The lead pastor is the elder, me, set aside to do the majority of the preaching and teaching. And if the Lord so chooses, he could lead one elder to also come on staff and become an associate elder full-time or part-time. That's what we have outlined in our church constitution, and I believe that's how a healthy church runs. Not just a lead pastor, not just one man, but multiple men. Whether they're lay leaders or whether they're on staff, multiple men in the ministry. So think about that, won't you? Think about the pattern of the New Testament church. Think about how the Lord might be calling you. And think about the fact that our church really needs to move in this direction if it's going to grow. A church will only grow to the point of the wisdom and the teaching of one man if only one man is ever the leader. All right, that's point number one. How long do I have, Gary? All right, all right. Calling. Now, you've heard this term calling before, right? And people believe they're called to ministry. I do believe that's been abused. I read a good article the other day that says that said the title was we need less men who feel called to ministry and i agree with that calling is not just about one's internal impulse and whimsical desire to attain an office i i care less about that internal impulse than your qualifications it's not just subjective. Your calling is actually ratified by a congregation who sees gifts in you and therefore calls you. So the calling is not just about you. It's also about the congregation calling you. But I do believe there is an internal aspect to calling. Um, calling is the word... When Paul says the word, uses the word aspires, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good task. The word aspires or regatai describes stretching oneself. It means you literally, physically are stretching yourself towards this goal. And figuratively, it refers to aspiring or desiring something deeply. This word is used in Hebrews 11, 15, and 16. In the hall of faith. In the hall of faith, it says that they had been, if they had been thinking of that land which they had gone out, they would not have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire, they stretch themselves towards a better country. That is, a heavenly one. So this desire Paul speaks about, oregatai, refers to a deep-seated desire. I, and I can attest to this personally. I remember sitting at my job in the bank and 
my heart burning within me. And I remember praying the psalm, asking that I might dwell in the Lord's house forever and inquire about his law. Because I wanted to be part of the things of God. I desired to teach the word, to study the word, to preach the word. So the calling of eldership, I believe, includes a God-given desire. Notice, too, that the calling is for not just the position of elder or the title or the office, but for the work. In 1 Timothy 3, again, verse 1, Paul says, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, a noble work, literally. So the aspiration is for the work of the ministry. So here's some indications of a man, I think, just really quickly, who might be called by God to be an elder. First of all, he loves the word of God. This is the preoccupation of his mind. He wants to talk about scripture. He wants to, doctrine does not bore him. He wants to know the things of God. He doesn't just fluff off things he understands, but truly seeks to know. This man will study at home by himself because that's what his mind and his heart is fixated on. He will probably read books about the Bible, doctrine, and the Christian life. Because that's what he's very interested in. And not just some, but this will be the, a preoccupation of his heart and soul. He will be a man who helps the church. And he's also a man who's prone to do what elders do anyhow, without the office. He'll be someone who wants to pray for a brother if they're struggling, wants to meet with them and talk about them. He always he will be a man who wants to step up if a need arises in the church. And there are others, but those are some things that I think would mark a man who is called to eldership as far as the internal aspect is. Next, Mark, if we could put it that way, is that he would be above reproach says so not only do you have an internal desire but you will be above reproach if you're truly called to eldership you must be above reproach must be above reproach not it would be good it would be very neat if the elder were above reproach but he must be above reproach literally above reproach means a life not deserving of rebuke or criticism this doesn't mean that the elder is sinless and perfect. But it means if you look at his life, there's not some glaring gap in his life. He's not, it's not that he's deserving of a great rebuke or criticism by other Christians. 
There's no glaring character issues in his life. Again, that doesn't mean sinless, but you look at his life and he's respectable, he carries himself like a godly man, he's committed to the Lord, he desires the work of ministry, and he represents Christ well. Now, when, I, when we say above reproach, this is because you're caring for God's church. In Acts 20, 28, Paul again, talking to the Ephesians el Ephesian elders, listen to how Paul characterizes their work. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That is a high calling, to care for the people of God whom he obtained with his own blood. Do you have something valuable in your house, your life? Think about what kind of person you would want to watch over that very valuable, valuable thing. In other places, the church is referred to as the Bride of Christ. The Bride of Christ, not just the people of God, but His Bride. Now, I ask you men, if you were to go away on a trip, what kind of man would you call upon to watch your bride? That is a very high calling. So, he must be above reproach. His life is not worthy of rebuke or criticism. He's the kind of man whom God would want to watch his wife. Paul then begins to list positive character quali qualities for the ministry. And I'm just going to go through these briefly, but thoughtfully. First of all, he says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Literally, that means a man of one woman. This means a man who has one wife and is faithful to her. And this time, it certainly meant that this is not a man who has concubines. It is not a man who is a polygamist. Um, those would be disqualifying factors. It is also not a man who has had a divorce because that's not a one-woman man. And it's not a man who is committing adultery, because that also is not a one-woman man. So, it must be a man who has one wife and is faithful to her. He is a one-woman kind of man. Next, he must be sober-minded. The word sober-minded means not given to extremes in thinking. Elders are going to make decisions in the church, and therefore have to be objective and rational and reasonable. God is not the author of confusion. He's the, he's the author of life and order and logic. And so an elder needs to be someone who is not erratic. He's not given to extremes in thinking, but he's sober-minded. 
That means the ability to stand back and look at an issue objectively. What a missing talent that is today. To not be inflamed with personal passion or emotion about something all the time. But to be able to step back with a measure of control over your mind and to look at something objectively and make a decision. So sober-minded means to be thoughtful, clear-minded. He's able to weigh and measure things. Next, he must be self-controlled. Sober-minded means not given to extremes in thinking. Self-controlled means not given to extremes in behavior. He's able to bring his passions into submission. He's not, he's not a man that's given to anger compulsively. He's a man that if he has anger, is able to control it. If he has lust, he's able to control it and do away with it. He's not a man given to gluttony, greed, or pride. He's not self-willed or quick-tempered. He's self-controlled. In fact, he's not controlled by the passions. He, he, he has a, a governing authority over himself, self-mastery. Next, he's respectable. That means he's put in order, modest. That word respectable is actually used of women, and they're dressed earlier in chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says, likewise also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. So it means that which is befitting and proper for a man in Christian leadership. He must have that kind of aura about him. Titus 1.8, when he gives the qualifications for elders, he adds the words upright, holy, and disciplined. I think that really rounds out what respectable means. He is upright, he's holy, he's disciplined. Discipline means doing what you should do when you don't want to do it, and not doing what you shouldn't do when you do want to do it. He's disciplined. And I think discipline is a key to growth, spiritual growth. And the Spiritual Growth Campaign will be coming up in January again. But brothers, let me tell you, if the Lord is impressing upon your heart right now that perhaps, perhaps he is calling me to some kind of eldership, you m must be disciplined. All right. All right. We're back on. He must be disciplined. Disciplined in the word, disciplined in prayer, disciplined with family devotions, disciplined with the way he handles money. So if, if this is a desire in your heart, strive to it by exercising discipline and becoming a disciplined man. Next, he's hospitable. I love this word because hospitable is philos and xenos together, which means friend of strangers. He's someone who's apt to treat guests and strangers as friends. And also, too, in um, 
1 Peter 4.9, this refers not only to strangers, but the brothers as well. Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So there's an openness to others. There's a willingness to open his home and to serve others. He doesn't want to push others away. There's an openness and willingness to serve. The one ability he needs to have, and there is one ability he must have. He must be able to teach. Didakatos means skillful in teaching. Why would a pastor or an elder need to be skillful in teaching? Because that is what we're doing here. We're handing down truth. We're contending for the faith delivered for the saints. Christianity is about knowledge. Not just head knowledge, but a soul knowledge as well. And if an elder is going to pass down knowledge, he himself needs to possess that knowledge and be able to articulate that knowledge. Titus, in Titus, Paul gives a little bit more about an elder's duty in teaching. Titus 1.9, Paul says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So three things. He must hold firm to the word. At the very least, that means he must understand and believe the Bible, the gospel, and basic doctrine. I am amazed about how ignorant some pastors are about basic doctrine and theology. Yes, of course, the thing that organizes us is the gospel of Jesus Christ, a very simple message. But in order to be a pastor, merely understanding the gospel is not enough. You must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught and be able to instruct others, rightly divide the word, and spot an error, rebuke those who contradict it, and have the boldness to do so. And there are so many errors in church history, and one error can lead to another error, which can lead to complete apostasy from the faith. And so he must be a man who understands the gospel, understands doctrine, because he has committed himself to the study of these things. So ability to teach means understand it, you believe it, you're able to articulate it, and you're able to discern error. So if we were to call an elder to this church, what I need that man to be able to explain is, what is the gospel? Now think about that for a minute. Are you able to tell me what the gospel is precisely? That needs to be on the tip of your tongue. And the gospel is the good news that God has acted through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ to reconcile us to God and to make all things new. And I can unpack that. But that, that kind of understanding and ability to articulate the gospel clearly must be with a potential elder. He must be able to answer questions like, why do we believe in God? Why do we believe the Bible? 
Why do we believe in Christ? And he should be able to explain basic theological truths like why Jesus died for your sins. What the difference between holiness and legalism is. What is grace and mercy? He's able to answer questions. That's, that's not to say he knows all things. But he does know what he needs to know to be able to teach God's the whole counsel of God. Next, there are some negative character qualities. What, uh, what this person must not be. He must not be a drunkard. I tell you, when I was a teenager, I went to a wedding, my cousin's wedding. And we were sitting around and my family got sat next to another pastor's family. And I remember, I always had respect for pastors because I thought they were respectable men. But uh, the waiter came around and, uh, and said, can I offer anyone something to drink? You know, wine, something like that. And the pastor said, why not? I'll have some wine. Now, that's not wrong, but as it, I'd never seen that before. I'd never seen that before, a pastor drink of wine, so it was, it caught me off guard. But that's not necessarily wrong. But as the night went on, this pastor became visibly intoxicated. He became unsteady in his movements and slurred in his speech. And I remember as a young teenager just thinking to myself, is that the kind of man that would able, be able to offer guidance in life from the Word of God? Is that the kind of self-control that God requires? It just made me lose so much respect for this man. So that if he were ever to preach or teach, I, I, there would be a wall between his words and my ears. He must not be a drunkard. Now, alcohol is dangerous. Did you know, I looked up some stats about alcohol, did you know that 37% of sexual assault cases are due to drunkenness? 40% of homicide cases are due to drunkenness and alcohol. In 2020, 11,654 people died in alcohol impaired driving traffic deaths. And that's a 14% increase from 2019. I'll tell you what, if, if you wanted less people to die in America, prohibit alcohol, and there'd be a lot less deaths. Simple as that. But this is not against alcohol necessarily. This is against drunkenness. And so what I want you to understand is that I, I am saying that alcohol is dangerous. So if you do drink, drink wisely and do not drink loosely with alcohol. I am sure many of you have seen the effects of it when you were young, what teenagers do with alcohol and the trouble that young women get themselves into with alcohol that they're paying for with their lives. I am sure I'm sure you've seen negative effects of alcohol, so be very, very cautious 
and even better if you stayed away from it. In Proverbs 31, 4 through 6, we read, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. So there's a very, very strong warning with alcohol. Consider that. Next, he must not be violent but gentle. How does this man, who we may consider for eldership, make things happen? Is he a bully? Or does he beseech by the mercy of Christ like the Apostle Paul? Violent is someone who is either physically or socially a bully. He's just going to come in there and he's going to get his way. He must not be that way. He must be gentle. Gentle is the quality of making allowances despite facts that might suggest a reason for a different action. So there is a time for firmness and there is a time to run past debauchery, falsehood, and wickedness and be firm and put your foot down about it. But what is this man's disposition? What is, what is he like? What's his overall attitude? Is he a bully? Is he going to come in there and make you do what he wants to do? Look at the Apostle Paul. Now, if anyone had authority in the early church, it was the Apostle Paul. Um, in the book of Philemon, if you remember the book of Philemon, the Apostle Paul is asking for this slave, Philemon, to be released from the custody of a man named, oh, uh, asking for a man named on Onesimus to be released from the custody of a man named Philemon. And he writes to Philemon, and as he's asking Philemon about this, he says, though I am bold enough to but though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man now, and a prisoner for Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And so he goes on. He says... Um, during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. What an example of a man who could have come down with apostolic authority and, and instead appealed to him in a kind and gentle way first. Now, Paul did at times come down with apostolic authority when he had to. But I think this is an example of what it means to be not violent, but gentle. Next, he must not be quarrelsome. If we call someone to an elder of this church, he cannot love gossip. He cannot be a man who is lusts after intrigue and contributes to it. 
Paul's going to mention later in 1 Timothy, men who had a, an unhealthy craving for controversy. There are men I know and I have seen, and if you can look on the internet, they're all over the place, who have an unhealthy craving for controversy. And their entire life is about what that person is doing wrong. And how he's bad, and she's bad, and everyone's a heretic. And there are heretics out there. But I would like to know what you believe. What are your convictions? So an elder's passion cannot be what he does not believe. Now he can be passionate about that at times, but ultimately his overriding passion is the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and he pursues that. He is not a constant accuser of the brethren. And I think that's become almost niche and fashionable today to with passion and wide eyes and an angry face call out anyone that disagrees with you about anything and want to burn them at the stake so there is a difference between being a man of conviction and being a man of contention there's a good article on the nine marks website that says are you principled or just a contentious jerk I love that title, because that is exactly what we've mistaken today. We've mistaken being principled and convicted with also being contentious and wanting that controversy. So let us be principled. Let us be firm when we need to, but let us not be contentious. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peace wanters. It's one thing to want peace and create chaos. It's another thing to want peace and make it. Proverbs 23 says, It is to one's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. And an elder must not be a fool and not quick to quarrel. Next, an elder must not be a lover of money. He must not use the office as a means of becoming wealthy or taking advantage of people, which is astounding to me that this is here. And we have people that are famous and on television today talking about money, how they have it, and how that's God's will for other people to have it. And that your entire Christian life is about wealth. I remember, has anyone seen the American Gospel? we got to watch that as a church. The American Gospel. Maybe one Wednesday we'll put this on. I remember seeing one famous TV preacher leading the congregation in prayer about money. And he said, all right, everyone, repeat this. Money cometh to me. What are we doing he must not be a lover of money and the problem is the church has selected men who are either charismatic or who are bullies rather than men of integrity and character 
Next, he must not be a lover of money. He must have a representative home life. In verse 4, or verse 3, verse 4, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? When I applied for my job at Citizens Bank, so about 10 years ago now, maybe 11, I remember sitting down there and answering many questions in, in, an, in an interview. They asked me about what I would do here and there, if I was put in this position, what my strategies would be, working at the bank, if I've ever handled money before, if I, if I understand how loans work, what reverse mortgages were like, if I had customer-facing ability or exposure in that job. But the one thing they never asked me about was if my children were submissive to me or if I had a representative home life. Why is that? Because they cared about how I could perform, if I could do the job. When we call an elder, we're not calling them simply because he is able to do the job. We're not looking for someone who can perform. We're looking for someone who is a man of God. You see the difference? There are many men who have forgotten more theology than other pastors I know and forgotten more doctrine, but those men that maybe don't know as much, they're holy men. They're trustworthy men. They're committed men. Again, I'm not, I am not over-aggrandizing ignorance. I don't think there's anything holy about ignorance either. I think you're in, if you're in the pastorate, you should know what the hypostatic union is. You should know the heresies. You should, know, you should be able to articulate doctrine. So I'm not saying, isn't this great that all these other pastors are genuine and they don't know anything. I'm not saying that. I am saying that give me a man who's holy over a man who knows doctrine and is not holy any day of the week. So his home life is his resume. He must keep his children submissive. Are his children all over the place? Are they, if he, if he speaks to them, if he reprimands them, are they going to defy him, call him a name, and run away, which I've seen? Or will they listen? Has this man been able to discipline his children so that they listen to him? Does he have a rein on his children? Is he able to control them? If you have fathers, and I, I, I think the fathers in this church do a good job. Well done. If you, teach them, if you teach them to be obedient and respect authority. I think that's a good thing that instills character in a man. And it will teach them ultimately respect to respect the authority of Christ. Um, next, if Satan wants to 
destroy the church, he's going to go after the pastors. And boy, has he gone after pastors who don't have character in the past couple years. There is, there is scandal after scandal in the news of pastors who have fallen into sexual sins or money-grabbing sins or cheated on taxes. And it, is, it is astounding. And Satan's desire is to expose that so as to bring reproach upon Christ. So, he must not be a re recent convert, Paul says. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Christian maturity takes time. And so if someone has been a Christian for six months, it is not wise to call them to the pastorate. No matter how good a speaker they are, no matter how passionate they are, no matter how articulate they are, no matter how much they love Jesus, because Christian maturity takes time. I want to see you be passionate, love Jesus, and remain articulate for five years, for ten years. And the reason Paul requires this maturity is to guard against pride. What, what is it that tempted Eve? It's you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If it does refer to the fall of Satan, I believe that's in Ezekiel. And the prophet characterizes Satan's fall and him saying, You said I would ascend into the heavens. There's something in a man's heart that wants to ascend and be seen and be worshipped ultimately. John Stott said the, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. And the essence of the gospel is God substituting himself for man. I think that's very interesting that what Adam and Eve did in the garden, Christ did the opposite. Pride will make a man fall into the condemnation of the devil. That is, the judgment passed on the devil will be the judgment passed on to presbyters or elders who desire to be seen over God. Finally, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Paul says. Well, you say, won't the world hate us? Won't, won't the world hate Christians? Yes, they will. They'll hate us because of our message, but not because we are angry, contentious, bitter people. That's not why, they, why, will they, why they will hate us. They will hate us because of our message, but we can speak it firmly in love with conviction and in peace, and if they kill us, they kill us. That's the kind of attitude that we need to have. Paul talks about, in Romans 2, he talks about people who have blasphemed God among the Gentiles because of their pride 
and sin while claiming to be representatives of God. The name of God can be blasphemed by an elder or a pastor who doesn't live a holy life because that's the one representing God. So, those are the qualifications Paul gives an elder. Church, I don't want you to think this is moralism. This is holiness. And the main question is, does Christ live in that man in fullness? Has Christ taken hold of that man? Is, does that man understand the truth? Does he delight in God? Is there a zeal and an unction in him? Is he willing to serve the Lord? Is his mind set on the kingdom? We are not looking for a perfect man because there only one ever existed. We're looking for somebody who was a sinner, saved by grace, and whom Christ has reconstituted as an example of someone who is growing and can lead others to grow. Congregation, members of the church, you're going to be called on at some point in the future. You're going to be called on to assess and vote and come under the authority of other elders in this church. And that must happen. It must happen. And that's a good thing. And I think it will be health and life to this church. But please hold us to the standards of 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Hold us to those standards. Men. Men who think that perhaps they see this, they want this, they want to strive for this. I want you to pray and think about what the Lord might be calling you to. And there are other men not here that I have in mind that perhaps also could think about this. I would like to, at some point in the next couple of months, start a training. We talk about personal discipleship. We talk about the gospel, true conversion, spiritual disciplines, basic doctrine, the storyline of scripture, our ecclesiology, how teaching the word works and how preaching works. And I would like to develop potential leaders in this church. I've been working on that for some time. I hope to bring it out in the next couple months. But for now, I would like you to pray about this. Know that the Lord requires this of a church. And I believe if Church of the Vine is going to be a healthy church, this is how the direction in which we must move. God is good. Thank him for his word. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and for godly men that you have put in churches throughout the world, Lord. If there is anyone here or who are members of our church or part of our church that you might be calling to eldership, I ask that you would impress upon them a true and honest and holy and genuine desire to teach your word, to be an example of the flock. And Lord, I ask that they would not be demoralized by these qualifications, but to strive to meet them. And may we all strive to meet them, Lord. 
We love you. I ask that if anything I said today is not of you, that it would fall to the ground. May your words take hold of our hearts and I ask that you would fulfill this resolve for good, Lord. We love you, Lord, and I want to just give this to you right now, asking that your will be done with it. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and power and dominion now before all time and forevermore. Amen. Amen. If anyone would like special prayer, I would love to pray with you. God bless you.